Um, from Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 1, verse 8. I had to go all the way back to the, uh, this is when the, the sentence begins. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that until the day which has been entrusted, that which has been entrusted to me. Um, wow. That is, some, that is some powerful stuff. I'll tell you, we, um, uh, week after week, we come in and talk about, um, and incidentally, by the way, no, no, I don't, this was not planned, but you could, you could not ask for a better visual of, of someone saying that, you know, I am not ashamed of that regardless than, than Derek standing up here. It's like, that passage exactly exemplifies the idea of one person standing, even if no one else is, because I don't care what everybody else is doing. That's, a, that's exactly what that passage is about. So thank you for modeling that this morning. Um, that is a powerful thing. We, there's a reason why um, we go to Scripture week after week. Um, you may have seen that. You may have noticed that. Um, that we, we typically are teaching from, and by typically I mean exclusively, teaching from Scripture week after week. Um, we are, we're in a culture that has, that has um, uh, pulled up anchor from truth. Uh, that's kind of, you know, pulled to untied from the shores and uh, no longer pulled up the moorings. And, and, and now our poor culture is really facing the consequences of drift. Um, what happens when you don't have something that you can anchor to? And, and I feel like our society, our culture is hitting storms now periodically. And everybody's looking around going, did anybody, did anybody know where we put that anchor? Um, anybody, anybody got any clues on what we, can, what we can connect to, what we can reconnect to um, that will be able to withstand this storm because it's not looking good for us? That is why we come back to Scripture. We are desperately in need of truth. It's why it's okay to bring friends to church is because they are desperately in need of truth and they are likely, we are all likely to go from place to place to place trying to find something that will give us a sense of being anchored, a sense of something we can count on, and all of them are going to fail except truth. And the one reliable source of truth that we have um, is Scripture, which is why we come time after time, whether it's going through God's Word, the teaching, the history, the narratives, the laws, the lineages, even the parables and the poems, all of it, reveal the truth of God to us, and painfully often the truth of ourselves to us. And so that is why week after week. So I, I, here's the deal, though. If the only time you're getting that is here on Sunday mornings, um, you're probably adrift. You need to be studying God's Word outside of this place. You need to be looking into it and, and reading it and learning about it and studying it. Again, it's easy to study nowadays. Um, it is amazing how easy it is, even tough passages. Um, with a simple search online, you can find 15 different experts' opinions on that passage. Sometimes that's helpful, sometimes it's not. But it's a, it at least gives you insight into that. So uh, let me just really strongly recommend to you that this not be the extent of your Christian life, be two or three hours on a Sunday morning. If it is, that is not the Christian life. Um, if you're living a boring Christian life or a Sunday-only Christian life, let me really challenge you. You're, you're missing something huge. Um, the passages that we're looking at, especially today, are just exciting. 
Um, so I hope that, that the same excitement that, uh, that I feel is somehow communicated. I was talking with um, Bob Livesey, who will be doing some uh, preaching in a couple of weeks here for us. Um, just sometimes there's a gap there between what you're experiencing, uh, what I'm experiencing, and how do I communicate that to you. And so hopefully some of that gets through the gap this morning. Um, it was amazing when Pike and I first both came and began to preach here. Um, we would go be sitting somewhere at a coffee shop talking about something and someone would come up to us and be like, hey, you know what I really appreciate about you guys? You, you really teach the Bible. And, and after people would leave, we would always be like, did you know we had another option? I didn't know we had any choices on this. Like, so we could have been doing something else? And so Anyway, so apparently people do. Hey, and also to update you um, on a couple of things. One, you hopefully noticed um, above the check-in area, the little poster, our, our version of a thermometer of those kids in the city on a hill, um, that, that there are more of them filled up after, um, after this last week. We, we are counting on 301. If the number's good for Gideon, it's good for us. 301. Um, people to be committed um, to this endeavor for us to build more education space for our children, education space built and dedicated to ministry to children. Um, and uh, of those 301, we are now up to 250 people who have, who have given and or dedicated to that, um, to giving, which, which the good news about that is that's a huge step in the right direction. The bad news is it means there's a, the 270 kid out there only has about this much color on them, and that's just sad and embarrassing. And so uh, we need to fill in the 270 kid, and then we'll be only 31 more. If you have not engaged in this, committed to this, especially if you are a member of our church, um, let me very strongly encourage you to please do that. Um, we have, again, we have these forms all over um, there are people turning them in that say, I don't know how much I'll be able to give, but I'm committed and will give. That counts. Um, they don't have an amount on it. It's none of that kind of stuff. This is a way of saying, I, I get it. I see it. I'm on board. I want to be a part of it. Um, this is the ministry of this church, the main ministry of this church. It's, it feels, maybe feels to some of you like the main ministry of this church is this worship service. Um, it isn't. This is, this is not the biggest thing we do. The biggest thing we do is happening um, across that breezeway in the lives of young believers and young lost kids um, who are going to be the future of the church in America. And um, like we're committed to that, and I hope that you will invest in that. Um, especially if you're one of those who says, gosh, I just keep forgetting. Please don't forget today. Um, we need to finish wrapping this up by next week. Um, John Keeling and I will be team teaching Hebrews chapter 8. We'll both be up on stage sitting up here in the stools and talking through Hebrews 8 next week. And um, the New Covenant conversation, I'm, I'm already just really pumped about it. I'll reference it a couple of times. So um, that means, by the way, the $3.9 million has been raised or um, pledged of the 4.6 that we think we're going to need. And so, again, that's, that's within striking distance. Someone could finish that off this morning. So if you've got two, three, four, maybe $700,000 sitting around that you were like, I don't know what I'm going to do with this, I have, I have an idea for you. Um, this would be a perfect place to invest. And if you've already engaged and pledged and you want to bump that up, do it. I, I hope that those of you who have already done that are inspired by seeing all these people engaging in this. We'll be meeting um, at 7.30 up on that hillside um, right over here where the field is to pray next Sunday morning. Please join us um, as we pray to, to close this out, this little stage. All right. Um, God's truth in the lives of our kids is worth the investment. Now, I thought about, for Hebrews chapter 7, I thought about bringing a rocking chair and having a little like blanket over my legs or something and bring my little reading glasses and all that kind of stuff, because I'm going to tell you a story. 
Once upon a time, there was a mighty desert lord, a nomad warrior prince, and they decided to part company from his relatives. The two relatives, these two, were so wealthy um, that keeping their flocks near to each other would burn out the resources of the land. So they decided to part company. Further, they were so powerful and their followers so vast that in time, conflict was beginning to break out between their staff, their employees, their warriors, and their herdsmen. They sojourned among backward pagan cities so full of the worshipers of the most bizarre and bloodthirsty gods. Um, I think I've pretty much settled on when I come back from sabbatical that we're going to teach through judges um, from during the fall up until Advent. And um, I, just, I just, as I've continued to connect Hebrews um, and what we've been looking at, and I think as a society that has become unmoored, um, the idea of a culture that has decided that everybody decides what to do, what is right in their own heart, it just feels like judges would be appropriate for us. So I think, I think we're going to dive into judges when I get back from that. And we will learn a lot about these bloodthirsty and bizarre gods. Um, but back to our story, our hero encouraged his relative to take whatever part of the land he preferred. So imagine in your mind eye, these two men, these two nomad kings in their desert garbs and their robes like modern day Bedouins, like exactly like you would picture, overlooking a great green valley. And in the middle of the great green valley are cities periodically along the edges. The younger chooses the fertile plains next to the most wicked of all of these pagan cities. The desert prince, the older one, gathers his people near, the forest of oak, near, near a forest of oak trees and settles in, following the practice of building an altar to his strange god, the monotheistic one god who is above all other gods, which makes Abraham a freak in his culture that he believes there is one god over the other gods. And he builds an altar to that god in each new place he goes, and so he builds one here among the oak trees. Now, before things can really settle down, the pagan kings of the region decide that they're more powerful than they really are, and they rebel against their overlords. The overlords sweep in from a foreign country and defeat them utterly in what's called the Battle of Nine Kings. Yes, Tolkien was familiar with Genesis. In the conquest, the overlord took our hero's relative and everything he had as part of the spoils of war. So, a survivor fled to our hero, whose name is Abram. Later, we know him as Abraham, who is that nomad king, that desert warlord. And he takes his elite troops, only 318 of them. See, we could have gone 318, 301, more attainable. And he overtook these warlords, these kings, and he overtakes them in the middle of the night with their armies, and in a pitch black attack, wipes them out, chases them off into the darkness, and recaptures all of those spoils. He took back not only what his family had lost, but all of the plunder that all of the cities had lost, and begins to bring it back towards the pagan cities. As Abraham brought back his bedraggled family and all of the freed prisoners and the possessions, all of the pagan kings gathered to meet him. And they begin a conversation. And the conversation is, is going to be a weird one. There's, there's the, the king of Sodom, for example, is going to offer for, for Abraham to keep a big percentage of everything that he's taken, even though it should go back to these pagan kings like the king of Sodom. And Abraham has the most dismissive attitude towards the king of Sodom. Not until Daniel dismisses Belshazzar do we get a much as, as this much of a snub. Abram tells the king of Sodom, no thanks. I don't want anyone to ever say that you made me rich. I mean, this is, this is a, a flat out insult in, this, in this, this day and age. This is shaming to the king of Sodom and Abraham doesn't 
care. He has no respect clearly for the king of Sodom. None. And these other pagan kings, they are not impressive to this Bedouin lord. But weirdly, in the middle of their proceedings, a stranger wanders up. And this is, it really is, the feel of it is very strange when you read through it. It's a, the, the Bible introduces this person as, quote, a priest of the Most High. Now, honestly, there shouldn't be any of those. Oh, you got, you got Abraham. Abraham is essentially the only real monotheist that we have that we know of in the whole world at this time who serves a God above all other gods. But apparently, there's not only is there another one, but he is a priest. And this priest, whose name is Melchizedek, which means the king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means, the king of righteousness. And it says that he is the king of shalom, which means peace. It may mean that this guy's literally the king of a place named shalom. There's a city still there, Jaru, the city of shalom, peace, Jaru shalom. Maybe to this day, we know where Melchizedek was king. He was the king of the area of Zion, Jerusalem. It's hard to know that for sure, but maybe. But here you have the king of righteousness, the king of peace. He is the wandering stranger, was somehow so significant in this story. He walks in the middle of these proceedings. Everything seems to stop. He ignores everyone but Abram. He walks up to Abram, hands Abram bread and wine. The first communion long before there's such a thing as communion. The first Passover long before there's such a thing as Passover. And he comes and he hands this to Abraham and lays his hands on him, I assume, and says, Blessed, this is from Genesis 14, 19, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abram, who has completely rejected the accolades of these powerful kings, accepts this strange man's authority and power. He accepts his right to bless him and to minister to him and to give him this food. And before, long before there was any such person as Moses to give a tithe law, Abram then takes all of the spoils. Remember, most of it isn't Abram's. And he gives a tenth of all of it to Melchizedek. Before there's such a thing as a tithe... Abraham tithes. And just as a side note, tithe means tenth. Um, that's just a little word clarification for those of you who, who will say like, yeah, I give my tithe. It's about 2%. Then it's not a tithe. I hate to break it to you. Tithe means tenth. Um, and the New Testament people will say like, well, the tithe isn't talked about in the New Testament. One, that's not accurate. Um, in Matthew 23, Jesus actually approves of. He tells the, the Pharisees, it's good that you tithe. Good. But if you tithe of everything you have, but you have no mercy and you have no grace and you have no goodness, then no, the tithe isn't going to save you. Sorry, that's not how this works. Even if you tithe things that you don't have to tithe. I mean, these guys were tithing from little seeds. They were counting, literally counting out like 10 seeds, one for God, nine for me. One for God, nine for me. That's what they were doing with little seeds. And Jesus is like, good. I mean, I'm good you do that. But I mean, guys. Anyway, so that's what's good. Cool. The tithe is assumed in the New Testament. The reason you don't get all this teaching about it is because it's assumed. And I strongly recommend, if you don't know where to start in regards to giving, especially if you're a young couple and you don't know where to start, that's a great place to start. A tent is just a good place to start. It, it made sense back then, and it still makes sense now. And then bump it up. 
And I'm not, I don't mean just to the church. I don't, by the way, I don't get a percentage of this or anything. Like, this is a paid the same, whether you tithe or not. I mean, below a certain point, I guess not. But, but the, generally speaking, right? So <clears throat> I will tell you, it, it will be a blessing in your life. As, as Pike Wisner once said, he has found in his life, he never regrets money he gives away. Regularly regrets money he spends, sometimes even regrets money he saves, but never regrets money he gives away. And I identify with that completely. Anyway, so he gives a tithe to Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High, clearly deferring to the authority of Melchizedek. And this is it, by the way. This is the first and last time we meet Melchizedek in a narrative like this. This is it. One time. His name appears once in this passage. That's it. This is all you get of him. He is clearly the precursor, the inspiration for all wandering wise men throughout all of literary history. So, you know, Merlin. Merlin would have come from this. Whoever wrote about Merlin would have had the thought of Melchizedek, the wandering wizard, the man who walks in, and no matter how powerful you are, no matter whether you're king or not, when this guy shows up, everything stops, you defer to him. Clearly, Gandalf. Tolkien had this guy in mind, right? the storm crow, the guy who shows up. It doesn't matter who you are. In fact, in some sense, you're not really king in these literary accounts unless this dude, the wandering wizard, the stranger who shows up says you are, right? That's, that's really how we all know and who the real king is, no matter who claims to be king, until Gandalf shows up and says, no, no, he's king. You're good. Or, you're good. You're good. Or Dumbledore. Dumbledore's a little bit of the same, Right? So here you have that same, that wandering wizard, this imagery that is created throughout all throughout the literary history. Um, even in others, Oz, David Blaine. I mean, these are all like the wandering wizard who shows up, the mysterious figure of power and eminence that kings and presidents and others defer to without question. Our Bedouin warlord in this passage pays a tithe to this man and accepts a blessing from him. So who is this person? The next time we read about him is in the Psalm of David. Psalm, uh, and the psalmist, when David is, is writing this music and the, the prophecy of God is flowing through him, the Lord, Psalm 110, 2 through 4, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the next time we run into that name, it is in the book of Hebrews. So we've run into him a couple of times, but chapter 7 is the emphasis on who this guy is and to explain his importance. He is vitally important to the argument the writer of Hebrews is going to make here. Hebrews chapter 7, for this Melchizedek, the king of Salem, the priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first <clears throat> by translation of his name, the king of righteousness. And then the king of Salem, that is, the king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, we've looked at all of this, but the last part, it's hard to tell what this last little bit means, and different people have different theories on this. Either this is a revelation about Melchizedek, that he really is like Merlin, I mean, he has no father or mother. He's a special act of creation, and he's this mysterious character who comes in and out of creation when it seems appropriate, that he wasn't born and he didn't die. I think more likely this is the point that the writer of Hebrews is making. isn't meant to be some radical supernatural thing, but more the imagery created by the character and his mystery. 
That's my opinion. I could totally be wrong about that, by the way. I think that's more likely. The author is pointing out, we don't know who this man's father and mother were. That was important in the Hebrew world. He wasn't even a Hebrew. Keep in mind, we're talking about Abraham. So the entire list of the Hebrew nation at the time of Abraham was Abraham. That's it. There were no Jews because Jew comes from the name Judah. No Jews. There were no Israelites because that comes from the new name that God gives Jacob, who is the grandson of Abraham. At this stage, the entire Hebrew nation was one dude named Abram. Abraham is it. He is the entirety of the Jewish nation at this point, of the Hebrew nation. In fact, recent discoveries in archaeology has discovered, this is really cool, that apparently there was a, a tribe of people, an odd group of people that wandered around the Middle East. And when you say the name phonetically, that is found in multiple sites now they found, it is Hebrew. Um, of course, secular archaeologists are absolutely convinced this has nothing to do with the people of the Bible. I mean, why would it, right? I mean, <laughs> wandering around in the Middle East like nomads, go by the name Hebrews. Other than that, I mean, what's the connection? That boggles my mind, right? It is... Not a river in Egypt, not just a river in Egypt anymore. The, the level is just, anyway, mind-boggling. This is a, this, but at this point, it's one guy. And by the way, in the language, it means stranger, wanderer, someone who shows up uninvited. If that's not the people of Israel, I don't, anyway. Um, we don't know when he was born, when he died. It's as if he continues to be around. Now, maybe the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, Melchizedek's around somewhere. Maybe. I think it's more like the writer of Hebrews is saying, it's as if he is still around. His priesthood didn't end. We don't have when he stepped down as king of, of Salem. We don't have when he stopped being the priest of the God Most High. He proved you could be a king and a priest, and it's a whole different order. He proved something else more important we're going to get to in a second. <clears throat> see how great this man, verse 4, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Exclamation point. The writer of Hebrews is very excited in this chapter, by the way. It's hard for us as Westerners to catch this because especially if you've been in church your whole life, you're like, right, right. I mean, okay, yeah, right. Jesus, priest, got it. But you got to understand that for this audience, for this Jewish audience, all of this is shocking. He's putting, he or she is putting together pieces that no, no one is really put together. And so this is really surprising stuff. And these descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment and the law to take tithes from the people. That is, their brothers. And these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from Abraham, does not have his descent from them, receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So Abraham was the child, was the promise. He was the one promised to, to, from him to have a, a tribe, a people, and that that would be a, a blessing to the whole world, as we know the Messiah would come from them. So some of the descendants of Abraham gave a tithe to other descendants of Abraham, sure, but... Abraham himself gives a tithe to this wandering stranger. It's extraordinary. Verse 7, and it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Now, this is a, this is a technical type of blessing. This is the formal sense of blessing. Um, children did not lay hands on fathers to give them blessings. This is that kind of blessing. It is the, it is the, the one in charge lays hands on the one who is following and blesses them. That was the format. Now, we know, of course, you can, of course, children can bless their parents, and, and, and that even becomes necessary very often, especially if you have a parent who is incapable or lacks whatever it takes to be a blessing, that you may outgrow them, and you have to then be, a, be the one who blesses them. Um, but I will tell you, <coughs> especially parents, all of us, 
The ability to speak identity into one another, to bless one another, to say how God sees us, to speak the truth to one another. This is the blessing. Um, It's a vital, vital concept. Dads in particular, if you do not bless your children on a regular basis, I don't don't mean the southern term, bless out your children. That's a horrible euphemism. To bless your children, to lay hands on your children, to speak to them and say, I'm proud of you. You are, you are God's child. Um, even as God the Father did, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. Like These are the type of things that we, that we seek to live out. I challenge you, if you don't do that, to do it. To bless your children, dads. And, and by the way, there's a great old book called The Blessing by Smalley and Trent. A great guide for that. It's an old book, but it doesn't get old. It's, it's a great one. Highly recommend it. It'll teach you some skills for that. I'm going to move on because I could whole weekend conference on the idea of blessing, so I'm not going to spend any more time here, but it is, from a formal perspective, it is beyond dispute, the writer of Hebrews says, the inferior is blessed by the superior. Now, of course, today we understand blessings are not unidirectional like that, but verse 8, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say, so here, you're going to do a little stretch here, and I think the writer of Hebrews knows, okay, I'm I'm stretching it a little here, but, but this is an important point. Listen to this. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestors when Melchizedek met him. So if you're confused by that, let me explain what the writer of Hebrews is saying. So Levi was the child of Israel, or Jacob, one of his many sons. Jacob was the son of Isaac. Isaac was the son of Abraham. So he's not using the word genetics, but it's the same concept. In Abraham's genetics is Levi. Levi is going to come indirectly as a great-grandchild of this man. So in the lo- he says in the loins of. We would say in the genetics of, but it's the same thing. In the loins of Abraham was Levi. So in a sense... The writer of Hebrews is saying, Levi, to whom all tithes go to Levi and his sons, Levi paid a tithe to Melchizedek. Do you see what the writer is doing? He is putting Melchizedek in a position of superiority over everything under Abraham, including the Levitical priesthood, including the Levitical law. That's what's being done here. Now again, you're going, so? Well, that's because you're not first century Jew. This is revolutionary concept, and you're going to love some of the other stuff, but I just want to make sure you understand it. Um, now, if perfection, verse 11, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? So notice, now referencing back to Psalm 110, if, if the Aaronic, Aaron's children, the Levitical priesthood was so awesome If it could do everything God wanted to be done, why would God say, I swear and I will not change my mind about this, there will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek? Why would God create a whole new priest, a whole new line of priests, if the the priests of the Levites were sufficient? That's what the the, the author is asking here. The Levitical priesthood was powerful and meaningful, but it was insufficient. And let me tell you the one thing it was insufficient to do. You hear this? To stop. It was never over. The one thing the Levitical priesthood could never achieve was completion. 
Every day, more animals had to be slaughtered. Every day. What about the next day? Yes. How about the day after that? Uh Uh-huh. Every day, animals had to be slaughtered. The law had to be lived up to. You were never sure you were there. You were never going to achieve it. Sadly, this is still the presentation of Christianity that too many people are raised in. Is this idea of you never know for sure. Are you good enough to get into heaven? I hope so. That's actually still, by the the way, the most common answer for Christians to give about how do you know if you're going to heaven or not. Well, I'm a good person. Let me just tell you, how good do you have to be? When do you know you've gotten there? How much does one sin count off as a negative from all the good? I do all these good things. I help all these people. Well, but you do it partially out of, you know, motives to be paid. Oh. You do it partially so that people will, you know, be be impressed by you. Dang, that's true too. So do they fully count? No, only get partial credit. How do you know you're there? We talked about if you were raised in one of those traditions, there's there's a, a, some friends of mine who are in another Christian tradition where they have they, they go to church every day. I know, right? There's and, and then they go extra times because, and it's not so they can learn, it's not so they can be together, it's so that they can earn a few extra, and I'm not kidding the terminology, a few extra points of grace. You get if you're earning it, by the way, it ain't grace. By definition, if you're earning it, it's not great. You can't earn grace. That's like, anyway, it's frustrating to, to even engage with this conversation. You can't do it. The Levitical law, as awesome as it was, as brilliant as it was, as ahead of its time as it was, could never finish this. The law could never say, it is finished. It was never going to. You go now, and you see the temple institute that they hope someday to rebuild the temple and start back up the temple sacrifices. Why? Because it's still not finished. It's not done. But at about 3 o'clock on a Friday or maybe a Thursday afternoon, which is the same time that the priest would blow the shofar to announce the evening sacrifices, about 2,000 years ago, on one of those afternoons at about 3 o'clock, a man hung on a cross and said, It is finished. That's what the Melchizedek priesthood could accomplish that the Levitical priesthood was never going to do. Done. Kaput. Complete. Finished. Perfected. At the end, it's done. This is the key. The Levitical priesthood could never accomplish that one thing. Verse 12, for where there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For where the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses never said anything about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but on the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed in him, you are a priest forever. Not until you... See, the the Levitical priests had this nasty habit. Every few decades, they died. And then you had to hire another one. And by the way, by the time Jesus was around, they were hired, the Romans were the ones selecting the families to become priests. It wasn't even correctly done. They kept dying. Jesus, on the other hand, after his death, came back. So he is able to continue through an indestructible life. For on the one hand, the former command is set aside because of the weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing 
perfect. The word there, perfect, complete. The law could complete nothing. This isn't an ending of the law. This isn't an ending of the moral teaching of the law. This is not, none of that. Jesus did not come to cancel the law. He came to fulfill it. It's not that, it's, it's not that it no longer serves any purpose, but that it does, it cannot serve the purpose that God intended, which is completion. A better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Hold on to that thought. Draw near to God. This is God's idea all along. It always has been. This isn't some new thing. Somewhere along the way, God didn't go, ooh, I didn't think about this. This was the plan all along. He has been, is building, creating new wine and new wineskins. The former commandments, the Levitical laws, and their priesthood were unable to fulfill what God wanted for his people in the end. The creative God has completed what he started. That's what we're dealing with. Verse 20, and it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. This one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said. So catch this, we're about to do a little name dropping, right? I mean, not to drop names or anything, but God said, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So, so the recommendation, the reference letter at the bottom of Jesus' resume as a priest is one name. Almighty God has sworn an oath to make me what I am, the priest in the order of Melchizedek. And now we reach the point we've been build, building to, which we, we maybe didn't need really, but the original audience certainly did. But we do need to hear this part of it. How could Jesus be a priest if not a Levite? Tribe of Judah. Judah doesn't have priests. It has kings, not priests. No problem to accept for the Jewish audience to accept Jesus as king. But priest, come on, you got to be a Levite to be a priest. No, 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 you don't. See, there was this one guy named Melchizedek, and he was a priest of the God Most High, and he wasn't a Levite. So, see, it can be done. And in fact, God promised he would do it, and Jesus is it. It is complete. The roads all converge. There's a priest from the order of Melchizedek. The Levitical priesthood and its law was not sufficient to finish things. Jesus is a priest, but not a Levite. He is a good reference for the job. God swore an oath. Jesus, as a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, can fulfill what? What can he do that none of the Levitical priests could do? What, which, what needed ratification in Jesus Christ? I hope you're still following this. What will the writer say next? What is it that Jesus is going to accomplish? We already have him as a better messenger, a better lawgiver. Y'all remember, that's the symbol there. Jesus is greater than. That's, the, that's why we're doing this. Jesus is greater than. We already have a better messenger, a better lawgiver, a better priest, a better law, a better plan for salvation, a better Sabbath, a better promise. And now we start talking about this other revolutionary idea. Verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, all the theologians in the room, well, we're all theologians. All of the studied theologians in the room, when you get that word, a guarantee of a better covenant, you should feel the weight come off your shoulders. He is the guarantor. Not the animals, not the blood, not you, not me. He has settled this. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in their office. Remember that nasty habit they had? But he holds his priesthood permanently. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. We're going to come back to that. But dang, 
Save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than law, appoints the Son who has been made perfect forever. I don't know how to communicate the vibrant power of the words in this passage. This passage is all about power. Can you feel the strength and the power? The language is overwhelming. The power over death. The power to save. The power to live forever. To make intercession for us without a break. No pause Not a smoke break, not a bathroom break, not nothing forever to intercede for us. And and though we sleep, he doesn't. Though we fail, he doesn't. The idea of him not being needy. This is amazing, guys. And We think we're doing God a favor sometimes. Like, "Ah, I came to church today, kind of did God a little favor. Maybe he owes me a little back. You know, give me a little kickback on me going to church. Or I prayed a couple times. No, no, he doesn't need anything. When we're disrupted, he's fine. When we pray, when we work, when we serve, he's fine. When we fail and we fall on our face, when we sin, when we're covered with shame, he's fine. When our lives are falling apart, his isn't. He's not needy. He doesn't need any help. He doesn't need anyone to make a sacrifice for him. He doesn't need anyone to intercede for him. He doesn't need anybody to fix problems for him. He's fine. We may be all over the map how great a God He doesn't need to do any of that stuff for himself. He doesn't need any help. He doesn't need any saving. He doesn't need any advice. So I'm going to admit something to you. When I, always, when I think about the concept of salvation, I can only ever picture lifeguards. Like that's always the image that comes to my mind. And recently there was an image, and I'm not kidding, like as I'm reading through this, this image came to my mind in regards to this. (laughs) So here's what's interesting. As I did a little research just, you know, image search here. So the, the little dude on the right, um, Zach Efron, um, he's, he's actually kind of a beast. Like the shots, they, literally they showed shots of him working out to prepare for this movie. By the way, I am sure this movie is a nightmare. Do, do, do not go see this movie. I am sure it is. Everything awful in life is presented in this movie. So I'm not, I'm not endorsing it. I'm not, <coughs> I'm sure it's total trash. However, he beefed up for this movie. The shots just of him, I'm like, oh my gosh, that guy's huge. He is ripped. That's who you want saving you. When you're in the ocean and the riptide is dragging you under and you're going down for the third time and your life is over, you want a big ripped Zac Efron to come save you. Unless that guy's available. <laughs> and if that guy's available, then forget him. I don't care how cute he is. I don't, I don't care how much of a supermodel he or any of the girls in the movie are. I don't, at that point, who cares? I mean, it's, when you're drowning, there's, there are, there's two, technically two traits that matter. Is someone willing to save me is one. And the second one is, can they do it? Are they powerful enough to drag myself out of the water? Okay? Are they able to do that? Can they, if they can press me above their head and haul me out of the water, that would be best. Right? <laughs> I want a hulking monster to save me limitless power. That's what you're looking for. And I'm not kidding that as I was writing this last little section, I had apparently seen this, and this image of, 
of these two dudes, and I'm thinking, yeah, if I'm drowning, someone call the rock. Because, I, I mean, I don't care if he has to club me and drag me out. I need someone to save me. And the saving person, I want to be as, monst- as much a monstrosity as possible when it comes to power. Yesterday, I went to two funerals. Um, Ryan Gardner's father died, Bob Gardner, and, and Ryan spoke at the funeral. And, uh, and so did Shirley Hilton, um, Pam Dean's uh, mom, and uh, Josie's grandma. And Josie spoke at the funeral. And, and as at, at both funerals, they talked about, they both referenced the song, It Is Well With My Soul. How do you, in the midst of death, have confidence? How do you, when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, how do you possibly fear no evil? You must know that there is someone who is awesomely powerful there to save you. That is the God being described here. He can save to the uttermost. Is there there anything between here and the full expression of salvation? No, no, he's colored that in. Is there any other concept of salvation that we've missed? Because if we have, he hasn't. He's got it. To the uttermost. To every boundary in every direction he has filled this concept of salvation completely done the hebrew word here which i'm sure i'm mispronouncing pantelis comes from two greek words i said hebrew greek words pantelis from pass which means every all whole you'd think that'd be the word by itself but it's not pantelis t comes from the other word is telos purpose goal or intention he saves As far as he intends to, in every direction, utterly, fully, completely saves. It is finished. There's nothing more to be done. It is an insult to think that that there would be anything else to be done. He is not merely a priest. He is a son. He's not merely a sacrifice. He, He doesn't merely have a sacrifice. He himself is the sacrifice. What does it feel like to be saved to the uttermost? The writer of Hebrews told us, you want to know? Draw near to him. Draw near to him and explain, express, experience what it means to be saved to the uttermost. Every corner colored in, every dot fulfilled. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power and truth of your word. God, we thank you so much for how full your salvation is, how complete your salvation is. Your son came as the better version of everything. Everything foreshadowed him. Everything had the song, the lyrics to him, that he's the one who finally sang them in perfection. He completed them. God, I pray that we as Christians will break free of the idea that we have work to do to lead to our salvation. As if he missed anything. That being said, Lord, thank you that because we are saved, because we can be saved to the uttermost with nothing more than drawing near to him, no magic words, just a prayer to speak to your son, to ask him to save us, Lord, that 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 alone is what it takes to be saved to the uttermost, to believe and accept, that then we are free to live in a new covenant, live in a new way, to live a new life, To go, and while going, we disciple, and while discipling, we teach, we baptize. God, that we love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. God, I pray for all the believers here 
that we would go from this place filled with the confidence of knowing you're okay when we try and when we fail and when we try and when we succeed and that you don't need anything from us. You just give us the opportunity to be involved and what a blessing that is. God, I thank you for the opportunity to be involved in raising up a generation of believers to have an impact in the whole world and kingdom. Thank you that this church has had that opportunity and has it. Help us to see that. God, thank you for the power of your word to change us. So, Lord, I pray you would change us. In your son's name, amen.